Episode 14, Roland's Gilliland, Part 2. I'm extremely, I mean, I am by any stretch of the imagination on the left. There's just no question about that. I mean, how could I not be? My parents were both precinct chairmen for the, uh, you know, the Democratic Party. At, at 14, I'm marching with my mother to get the birth control pill legalized. You know, I, at, when I'm nine years old, I'm at uh, rallies to integrate the Dallas schools with my parents. I mean, come on, let's get me a break. What is that, two-thirds of a century ago? That I'm, you know, so, I mean, when I hear all these people going, oh, my God, look at the racial discrimination. I'm going, oh, yeah, there's no one that is more sanctimonious than the new recruit who just was born again yesterday. But they'll talk to me then, like somehow I have missed it. Well, you know, I didn't miss reading about Emmett Till in 1950-something or, for that matter, in 1991 or two, Rodney King. Or, I mean, I could go on and on and on. So I'm kind of having a problem right now with this whole thing where everybody's acting like, oh, my God, how did we not know? Well, my question to you is, how did you not know? I am so, for instance, so wildly indebted to NPR for putting me on the air. I had like three to five. Uh, it's really th five I recorded, and I think three that aired, you know, in rapid succession in 2000 and 2001 um you know that's incredible you know to be in your car and hear yourself being broadcast out of washington dc you know on a on an original two three and a half minute piece you've written so you know that and and recorded in your own voice so there's that and then i parlayed that to fast forward the story into being a regular having a regular time slot on dallas's npr affiliate kura and uh, that couldn't have possibly have been a more positive experience, you know. And I'm also realized then I was very good on the air with fundraising, and they realized that too. And one, you know, they'd raised twenty one thousand the day before, and I'd be on the air for an hour and fifteen minutes and raise thirty two thousand, you know. So, but you know, I'd make the audience laugh. I'd say, you know, pull over. I know you've been drinking. Give me six hundred dollars, and I'll take you out for a cheap dinner and drink. Well, all of a sudden, you know, I. For two and a half months, I'm knocking on doors, taking people out for cheap dinner and drinks. I put my money, you know, I, I put some skin in the game, as they say. I called my very first show, Rated R Rollins. Um, rated R and then AWL, you know, get it, you know. <laughs> and I had no one that could come that was under 18. And even though people would say, oh, my 14-year-old is so mature, he'd love your stuff and everything. I would not, I don't care who they were, no one under 18. I, it wasn't like I was going to be vulgar. It wasn't going to like, it was going to be profanity-laced. It wasn't going to be like, wink, wink, not, you know, no campy this and that and everything. I was just going to tell real stories to real adults that are, that are, that in a very adult, natural, uncontrived manner without this sort of sense that I've got to be careful because what I'm saying here can be strewed, construed to mean that. I was writing pieces about my homeless friend Charles. There's a man that lives a mile from me and has now for 20 years, and for the last 12 years I've been his personal advocate. He lives in a hovel. I mean, he's created his own sort of world in the forest, 
and would gather cans and sell them. I could tell you the whole story. But the bottom line is that this guy was the hardest working man I've ever seen in my life. And I uh, it took me five years to befriend him because he uh, doesn't trust people. He's got probably far into the autism spectrum. There's a lot of issues with Charles. But Charles and I have become just true friends. Uh, I advocate for Charles. I, you know, I uh, through social media, people donate money to me that I use to buy his eighty dollar a month, you know, Dart Rail Pass where he can go anywhere. He, I helped him get food stamps when you can't get, you know, you can't get food stamps unless you've got a permanent address. How much sense does that make? Oh, you're living in your car with your two children. You don't get food stamps now. If you're living in that apartment, you get food stamps. Oh yeah. So, you know, I beat the system to try to choke. I mean, I could go on and on, but I'd write about Charles. And and when I tried to describe Charles, my editor would not let me mention his race. He said, that's irrelevant. I said, if it's irrelevant, then why can't I mention it? You know, I'm describing Charles. So the way I got around that is I said that I could tell when I look at Charles that he is was probably once a young, handsome, blonde athlete. That's how I got around it. But it shouldn't have been... You know that people wondered what he looked like, and, there, and, and if race doesn't matter, then... You know, I don't think anybody would have had a problem with me saying Hispanic, you know, or Latino. Am I making any sense? I, it, if it, it didn't mean anything to me, and that's why it would be natural for me to mention, you know, what he looked like. People would want to know. Um, you know, they would want to know what he looked like. Well, people's race has a lot to do with how they look. That doesn't mean that one's better than the other. You know, if you're... Asian, you're going to look different probably from, you know, from uh, somebody that's, you know, uh, you know, uh, from Mexico City. Um, It's just, it just became so complicated to navigate all of the thing and just to really just to try to circumnavigate. Let's just to do, can, can we just get straight through all of this to tell the story. That's what all I was trying to do, just to tell the story. I just had to slap my chihuahua right in the middle of that because <laughs> they were things. That's not a metaphor either. There is a no, chihuahua. there is a chihuahua here, my little Mona, yeah. But Mona loves to dig on the rugs, you know, they think. So anyway, it's not to take anything away from NPR. It certainly isn't. I don't mean that because 95% of what I listen to is NPR and, and, and I'm indebted to them for a million reasons, even if I'd never been on there. I think coming in here, there's um, there's a couple of things on my mind. I mean, obviously, being an artist and a, and a poet and making a living by communicating, um, you know, communication seems at thread and, and discourse and, and, and dialogue and, and respectful communication in, in 2017. And, and, you know, even uh, people are turning, in my view, certainly to NPR as a, as a moral intellectual compass or just something, an oasis to, you know, we can actually have something that, oh, that yeah. there's. Uh, however, you know, also podcasts are very popular because people there's still room to have even more frank and authentic well and i can see why i can absolutely see why because at this point 
I'd be the, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to admit that I've been remiss about getting into podcasts, uh, particularly. There's no particular reason for it, um, but um, but you know, for the same reason, you know, I don't subscribe to Netflix, and you know, I've never had cable or satellite, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I'm just, I I don't know. I'm just kind of this sort of person who is very quietly reflecting and you know out in the woods or they're very gregarious around town but anyway the but the larger points are, is that it's 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 it has created that the meat i hate the term the media anytime i heard people call, use the expression the media or the mainstream media i realized they've already lost my attention because it's too collective a term it's meaningless so I do realize that even in the time that I'm here on the air with you and also in your company, that I'm actually just cut out to listen to podcasts and probably to do podcasts because they really they they really can then target an audience that really honestly wants. Now, it might be that you're targeting an audience that wants a narrower perspective. But I think that at my best, what I offer is a broader perspective. And I've come to realize that just through social media. And and I've also come to realize that how many people tell me privately that they really liked the balanced way I was looking at, for instance, these particular issues that we're looking at right now. I mean, I could even mention people in the Trump administration that I think are doing a good job. I mean, I'd have to be probably, you know, you know, on a drip IV to do it. But, you know, but again, you know, there is always, nothing is completely just one dimensional, you know? So, uh, some people would go to podcasts for a much more narrow. I mean, if I was probably, uh, you know, a wild eyed, you know, white supremacist, I'd probably think that's the perfect, you know, thing. You know, I can just, you know, do the HIV lane to my people. But I also think then I would like to think that it also is a welcome avenue, almost like in the Wizard of Oz when it became in color. <laughs> if you remember that, since you're from Oz, as they say. Um that it's it's a it's a it's a welcome avenue for broader thinking. I used to call it alternative realities, but see, then that got co-opted by the trumpet. I mean, you know, you, Kellyanne Conway said, "Well, it's alternative facts." Well, I was going to name my first book "Alternative Realities" because it was, you know, it was just different ways of looking at things. Well, you know, good luck with that. And if if, if that was ever on Amazon, you know, nobody would read it without assuming I was like somehow uh you you know where i'm going so i can see why people i would like to think that sitting here that podcasts offer a little bit more poetry of life than just the prose because the prose is now i think is becoming entirely too uh pigeonholed as i said i mean I want to go on record as saying that my criticism or the examples I gave of NPR are very valid, but those are not to the exclusion of the of the larger truths, you know. But um, 
but it's a warning shot because I can guarantee you that when I sense something, and I and 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 this is inevitably true, when I sense things, really sense things, it's almost a hundred percent something that that. I'm going to understand on a much larger plane and other people are going to be sensing later than I. It's just something I'm spotting. It's like holding your finger up in the air and you feel the breeze. Yeah, I think podcasts, I understand now for the first time without even trying, I think why that's something. It's almost like when we went to a direct publication instead of through larger companies self-publishing and do-it-yourself music and and um, and podcasting i mean on the the website and i, I call this what we're doing media I, I call it media and i call self-publishing media as well and i do that very intentionally because i don't think i, I i've observed it as you have you people writing off like a, this media is like a collective term but i don't yeah. think i don't think what we're doing is like some of the cable news shows that you've mentioned and well, other things breitbart is media what you're doing i doubt is like breitbart how is breitbart and npr and all that lumped into the same term. It's it's silly. I had somebody this morning tell me that that reading the comments, you know, online comments to columns and that kind of thing is really the only way you can really get to the truth because the media is so skewed and everything. Well, if you and this is at the very time that I have really honestly made a a an actual decision. I'm not going to read comments online to um to columns <laughs> somebody else thinking well that's where the real truth lies oh yeah oh yeah have you read the comments to columns lately honest to god it's like it's everybody you know the cliche about the echo chamber well believe me that there's a reason that's a good cliche it is an echo chamber so you each one i can you can get there and there all of a sudden there'll be that phrase that phrase you recognize that phrase i know exactly where that phrase that phrase right there came out of between the world and me you know i i read that too so i think that there's still room and certainly one of the main reasons that i'm doing this apart from the opportunity to talk to wonderfully interesting people um is because it's that still requires effort and it still requires to, to investment to do this is because yeah. there is still a need for more voices to, to be out there to I don't want to use the word reclaim but but just to try and be part of the ancient form of communication I like that between term, reclaim people. I hadn't heard that one used applied to this but that is kind of what we're doing but uh, you know whether it's you know like say reclaiming it or or, uh, or just participating in it maybe is, is even a better word to say well look it's not like okay this weird race of people called politicians and then there's the people you know people and the politicians should be yeah. part of the same race yeah. you know what we're doing now and uh, a news outlet is part almost of the same thing in as far as we're trying to communicate and we're trying to tell stories or we're having a conversation about things that are heartfelt and and particularly in an authentic way as much as possible that's what we're trying to do maybe that's not all well, then, that's not in common with a number of other outlets but that's all the more reason why we need to do this all right two things one too much of the of the quote end quote what is referred to collectively as the media is agenda driven, and that's something that's that very clearly needs to be 
monitored because, again, I can't think of any, like, for instance, I, I, I'm not on this street because, you know, I was placed here in some sort of relocation thing. I chose to live on a street that is legitimately racially and ethnically integrated. Uh, I said when I moved here in 1983, I was working at Neiman Marcus. I said, I do not want to be in my front yard and wave at somebody who's honking at me in a BMW. I'm, I'm having, I get enough of that at work. I need this other to balance it. You get it? So we're done. You need the, 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 the big world is what we need to be exposing ourselves to instead of being in our own world talking about it. The second thing, and this is where I really quibble with so many of my well-meaning progressive friends, that, that there is no room for nuanced thought when I try to balance an, an absolute perspective. You follow me on that? The absolute perspective, for the sake, let's just give the example, because I'm not going to quarrel with this, but let's just say the absolute perspective is that the Civil War was about slavery, for instance. So if, if that's the absolute perspective, then, then anything that you say um, is going to be discounted be, because there's any nuance in it. Now, per perfect example is the other night when I pointed out, they said, you know, we, we just need to get this right, you know, because blah, 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 and everything. I said, well, actually, President Lincoln got it right. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when, President, when the war was over, President Lincoln made all Confederate soldiers American war vets just exactly as he as the Union troops they were they got full pensions full benefits the exact there was no differentiation at all and the same that federalized all the Confederate cemeteries in other words they were all the same in his eyes at the end of the war so that's not something I'm saying to be agenda-driven, but that's a very different perspective on something that is agenda-driven, and that is that with this one buzzword, then everything is like completely negating any subtlety. It also, you know, does not... Again, you know, I, I didn't mean to digress on that, but, you know, the parenthetical is not a one-size-fits-all thing. I've already said, you know, I don't understand how in 1936, for God's sakes, a park in central Dallas in the area called Oaklawn that was called Oaklawn Park became renamed Robert E. Lee Park, you know, when Dallas hadn't even been around in the Civil War. So there, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. You know, on the other hand, Montgomery, Alabama was the first capital of the Confederacy. I'd probably have a very different idea about how something was represented there. You know, it's just not a one-size-fits-all thing. But what I've learned from my progressive friends online and in person is that they've become so ideologically doctrinaire that they really, really, they don't even push back on any subtlety of thought. It is outright rejected. And, and, and the example that I gave before is worth giving again. And that's that, for instance, like, like I've already said what I think about that statue, you know, in Dallas, in that parking or whatever, and everything. it's a beautiful statue, but it you know, happens to be the wrong person in the wrong place, whatever, you know, you know where I'm standing on that. But, you know, this friend, this guy I know, I don't even ever agree with him politically, for God's sakes. And he writes a very thoughtful 
uh, column in D Magazine uh, about why he feels that statue should remain. And because the white supremacists and the Trump thing have all pushed together, suddenly anything that's not just completely... uh, Everything about the argument of keeping something or, or, or in defense of anything that has to do with, you know, is somehow equated then with white supremacists, and therefore you run the danger of being cast in that role. I made sure that I didn't read some of the comments because I I went on there, for instance. This is very important to me to get this in, but it's only for the moment. I just went on and said about him. His name's Glenn. And I've never agreed with him, and I've met Glenn. At one point, I sort of knew him, but I've never really agreed with him politically or anything else. But Glenn's column was thoughtful. It, It diagrammed why he feels the way he does. And all I did was go online there and say, all I want people to consider when they read this is that Glenn is a very honorable man who has an intellectual and moral compass. I know this about him. Uh, you know, I might not agree with Glenn uh, about this or that. You know, it's it's irrelevant. But I do know that he doesn't have this sort of shrill agenda you know he's he's a he's an honorable good man who's who's intellectually sound and you know i'm encouraging people to read this i mean you know it's not like all of a sudden you're going to get gonorrhea if you actually read you know some somebody else's uh opinion it might soften yours it's not going to change yours or something but again it's like we on the left are always saying if we could just spend more time around each other, we'd learn to love each other. Well, you know, hell, you know, it might be helpful if we actually lived that. So I knew for well, I said, I'm posting this and I certainly am not going to look at the comments because I know what will happen. If I'm saying anything decent about the author, I am going to be taken to task for what he said as if I wrote it. Now, how does that make sense? How does that make sense that that I'm that I'm being magnanimous about who this person is? I'm not explaining to anyone why he thinks the way he does. He's explaining it. Uh, that's not really my point. My point is not to just reject him out of hand because he feels that way. And listen to why he feels that way, because here's somebody who can actually explain it in a linear manner. Somebody joked me one time that Linda Ronstadt back in the day could only sing loud or, or quiet, you know, and I've had friends that can only drive fast or, or slow, you know, they can't just do anything in the middle. And that's the way they're going to be. So you see, so I tuned that out because I said when I was in the woods this morning, I'm not going to take all that baggage into going on the air with with you. But to some extent, I did, but only in a positive sense because I didn't buy into it. But again, I just watched the pylon going on with all these things telling me why he's wrong. And don't tell me why he's wrong. That's not what I was posting about. Tell him what you think about what he wrote. 
I'm not ghostwriting him. I'm not his agent. I'm just saying, read this guy. <laughs> Nuance. Nuance and, and agenda. Those are the two words. If I was a tattoo guy, I'd put one on each hip. <laughs> no agenda. No. Well, I'd like to, I, I kind of wonder sometimes whether feeling like we have to explain to people what reason debate is or just remind people that it might be a good thing. Or, But I think the listeners are smart enough to know that or shared the same frustrations at how to engage with media and any form of communication, particularly on social media at the moment. Uh, it's an intensely frustrating It's experience. intensely frustrating. I'll tell you something, though, and it's very, very good. This is where I'm really appreciating the time I'm spending with you and the listeners. Going door to door and talking with people of three different colors and, you know, who are likely to be socioeconomically lower than I and um, you know, a lower education level and a lot of other things. In other words, people that are quite different than I. I said many times, I moved where I moved to be saturated with the it that is the reality of others. Not to be looking at it as an elitist, you know, blah, 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 but, but to be truly, honestly immersed in it. The same way if you want to become fluent in a the language, they say you immerse it. I'm fluent in this. You know, I can tell you right now, you can tell when somebody's not. They don't know when to use the word Hispanic, when to use the word uh, Latino. They don't know when to use the word black and when to use the word Af African American. These people on this street know exactly because, you know, it's like a, it's like a dialect and yet when i was it ed was edited by the dallas morning news and everything she changed me called i said in a sentence the africa the it was just a sentence you know whatever the sentence was but let's just say it's the sentence was basically my african-american neighbors are or you know and then this this you know the sentence went there and she changed the sentence to the black folk on my street and if you lived around black folk is just completely rural uneducated a way of just pretty much assuming that every African-American person has a watermelon in their hand. I mean, you know, I had to go door to door. Everybody was taking the Dallas Morning News at the time, and I, you know, I just had to go door to door explaining, you know, I did not, you know, write the black folk on my street. But anyway, but that's the nuance. That's the things you know when you actually become fluent in the art of living with people for decades whose ethnicity and race is different from your own. And so, you know, that's one point. But the other thing is about just the going door to door. I couldn't argue with those people. What am I going to get? What am I going to get out of going to a door? And when the guy says that, you know, the, the Latino guy tells me that he wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a lesbian. Somebody, you know, it's, this is what he's, you know, what am I going to do? Act like I'm at a bar and go, that's stupid. You know, I'm, I'm canvassing for a party and a, a candidate. I'm not there to be telling them how they should think. I'm there to try to learn how they think 
and to persuade them perhaps to think differently. Are you with me? Good example of that. So that's where a lot of my patience with this, this tolerance for trying to explain something and then watching this avalanche, it's both my impatience and patience with it are both explained by that because that's that's really developing a set of, of disciplines. Uh, because, as I said, there's a huge difference between a conversation in a bar and bar talk. And and when you go door to door, it's like the former, not the latter. It make any sense? So, um, and that's when th- things didn't rent I still read people on, on Facebook that say that, that they're, the, they're the very first people to be outraged at how they perceive the extreme right thinks of them that's kind of a buzzword them they and them yet they do exactly the same thing they completely monolithically assume that everybody that voted for donald trump is a them you know and and that was the only time i thought there was even a shred of nuance in what you could perceive and what the president trump said and that is that undoubtedly not everybody that was there you know who was uh, for the statue remaining was a, was a white supremacist, but but un, but what happened is that the white suprem you, you see what I'm at. I'm just trying so hard sometimes to re- to get people to understand. You know, you can you can still be religious and have sex. You know, <laughs> I remember telling a nun that one time, and she didn't quite understand my point. <laughs> Uh, okay, good. I'll recompose myself as being professional here. <laughs> well, right. everything's an analogy with me. That's the seventh generation Texan in me. One of the things that kind of struck me overnight um, was, you know, you've just done this. I, I always try and put myself in the guest's shoes and say, you know, you've done these huge kind of sellout shows in Dallas talking just about your life and you've kind of, told people everything about about you and all of these, you know. As, well, I didn't censor them, no. You know, so you've done all of this and, you know, it's it's 70 years old. 72. My, my realisation out of all of this, this idea came into my mind. I was like, you know, how does it feel to have done shows of your life? It almost feels like, okay. Uh, in fact, I think one of the comments was, this is Roland's magnum opus, you know, and a kind of a work of a lifetime type of thing. And I thought... I wonder how it feels like. Does that feel like, okay, well, you know, that was my life. Okay, now and what happens next? What do you do after you've done your magnum opus and you're 72 years old? Well, I did wonder that, yeah. I'll tell you the good news is with me, and I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but I'm the kind of person that once I've really hit it out of the park with something, I'm not interested in repeating it. So that helps. You know, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, once you've had a taste of, you know, uh, standing room only theaters, and those weren't small theaters, you know, there's at least 350 seats, and, you know, and they became progressively more expensive because, you know, I had live musicians on stage doing live soundtrack in real time as I told the stories. They're really productions. Uh, and, and, um, but once you've done that, you know, you'd think you'd get, you know, bitten by the bug and that kind of thing. And I tend to be the kind of person that, um, well, here's a good example. When I was, when I was 
on my way up at Neiman Marcus, every time that there would be, and it was in this case a man that didn't want to promote me because he thought I'm so good at what I'm doing. I said, well, I was really good as a poet in residence too, but I don't go around reciting poems to the Neiman Marcus customers. Um, you know, there... It was, I mean, I thought that was so stupid. Just because you're good at this, that's what you're supposed to do. Oh, you found your niche. You found your calling. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, you know, I am seeing a million nonprofit events in this town, and people say, oh, you're really in your element doing that. No, it's a lot of work emceeing a nonprofit event, uh, you know, because you've got to have just the right amount of pathos, you know, to draw them in because, you know, they're for a very wealthy cause. But at the same time, if you do that too much, then you're going to put everybody to sleep and if you joke too much then it's gonna look like you're making light of the fact that these children are homeless you know you get the thing you know so it's a balancing act but that i'm never interested in repeating something that i've done so that's a good thing uh in this particular instance i was pretty exhausted because that was 17 months that i was absolutely doing that run um, and, um, and they were becoming with each new show, which were only three months apart. And then f ultimately the final one was six months after the, the pre prior one, the final show was six months out, which was two days before my 70th birthday. So, um, when it was over, I thought that's over and everything, but it was kind of like when those, you know, the, when you turn off the car and it just keeps running. I don't remember what that thing was, but everybody's seen that happen. You know, there's something wrong with it. And that's kind of the way it was for about five months after I'd finished my shows. I just kept winning awards and there would be murals that would go up and the people, uh, readers poll would, you know, uh, a vote that I was the best storyteller in Dallas and stuff. So it was wonderful. But for five months after it was over, I'm getting all all these residuals, you know, at one point I sat at Lark in the Park, the number one bar in the arts district, restaurant, the arts district, and above the bar was a 25-foot mural of six images of me at different eras in my life. At 12, at 17, my, my high school graduation picture, at 22, uh, and then on the commune when I was 28, I think, and then when I'm poet in residence at 32 and then at, at 70 doing the show. You know, I mean, who sits at a bar and looks at these four-foot square images that go 25 feet from left to right and they're you and they're done by the art. And it was done by the muralist Steve Hunter in Dallas who is in. Incredibly, I mean, the, I can't even tell you how he nailed the images. It was me, and it was like it, it was like I knew that photograph. You know, it was a candid photograph made when I was twenty-two, and and I knew that photograph, and and he managed to just completely replicate it. It was the eeriest thing in the world. So. You have the ride of your life, and you would think you would just crash in, you know, and think. But I spent the entire last year just being absolutely thrilled that I got left alone. It wasn't against anything any more than my comments about NPR against them. I mean, we're just intellectually talking about, you know, when you go to the right and the left, and I don't mean politically, just in life. But having said that... Um, I, do, I did realize coming off of the shows then what my next project would be. And, of course, I'm never keen on talking about what those things. I do think that I do have a natural ability to 
uh, communicate live, you know, and I, and I'm, and, and the, the forum of doing that with an audience. You've talked about having a, a number of, uh, of chap. I mean, you have had a number of chapters based on what you said, and I know it's yeah. been an observation of you on your, your website and things like that as well. And, um, my observational thought before coming in was that you're the same age as the president, you know, I'm kind of, I just tried to reflect on what, what you had done and you've got your magnum opus is not just kind of creating a symphony. It is, it is being fully authentic about your own life and just flushing, you know, just communicating everything about that. And, and the stories, you know, as the listeners have heard, it's, it's all sorts of things. It's not about being a, a quiet boy your whole, your whole life. And I just thought, you know, given given uh, the current president, whether you like him or not, yeah. I, just, I just wonder what, uh, you know, given you're the same age roughly as him and another chapter starting off <laughs> is what we need. I'm actually uh, one year older, but you're absolutely right, yeah. Uh, you know, it just as an amusing thought, I thought, Ever thought about going into politics? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can, can you dig dirt can you on imagine? somebody that uh, has already told everybody everything and yeah. there's no surprises? Yeah, you can imagine. I'll tell you what I think when I'm, you know, again, I, I like what your question was was going there for a second, you know, because it, it, politics aside, and people always say that, and that's like, you know, a, a load of things. But I mean politics aside. Donald Trump makes me glad, and he's not the first person. A lot of people at Neiman Marcus did, obviously our clients, make me glad that I did not raise what that I wasn't raised in that kind of world. That I wasn't raised around money and, you know, where it's preordained, you know, what school you go to and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I'm I'm very happy to be me and I'm very happy that I've had the experience so far. I mean, I'm still in pretty good shape, you know, and I'm enjoying life. I mean, I'm trying to figure out tonight, you know, tonight I won't be sitting around, you know, streaming, you know, HBO, you know, I'll uh, drop in several places and whatever. I may even, you know, tonight, you know, if if my friend Carolina's there at the Colombian nightclub, I'll drop in for a few rounds of salsa dancing because I spent a lot of time in Colombia, you know. I think that no small part of what I pick up on when I'm listening to him talk with when the politics are aside and you're just listening to him is that he really truly hasn't been around. He just hasn't been around. A lot of wealthy people haven't. I mean, I used to feel sorry for them, like, for instance, in the 80s when I was the head of personal shopping for Neiman's on my way up. I'd think, you know, these people don't have a choice what car to get. It's which color Mercedes. You know, they don't have a choice what luggage. It's, you know, it's either Louis Vuitton or it's that other. I mean, it, it's, it's a strange kind of first world problems, you know, of the, of, the, of the wealthy. But I pick up on it all the time. But more to the point, if I may. When my dog was hit by the train two months ago, I cannot begin to tell you the agony that I went through on that. I mean, I know we love our dogs, but my God, Mo was only uh, a year and a half old. It had taken everything I could to get that 45-pound puppy that jumped in my car that was homeless to not eat everything in my house. You know, uh, four and a half months it took me to get Mo trained without crates without a be you know and finally i had the perfect man's dog i say the man's dog because i am a man i mean this was the this was the perfect dog for the woods mo was 90 pounds beautiful blonde handsome wonderful smart 
and happy and funny dog. Charming company. Everything about Mo was magic. And then we're both nearly killed on the railroad track. And then as, as I feel like that the train is going past us and, you know, we're very near the train. I mean, you know, it's like I'm as close to the train as I am to you. And, and the sound is deafening and everything, but we're both alive and everything. And then to hear that clip and his head explode, it just was one of the biggest nightmares of my life. And the first thing I did after I spent two weeks, first thing I did that night is get drunk. I never get drunk drunk, but I told a friend, if, if, if not now, when? I want to get drunk. I can't cope with this today. I've got to deal with this tomorrow. I'll I'll start figuring out what I do tomorrow. But I need something to just, you know, and and that didn't work. Uh, it's when I learned something, you know, all all life lessons. Um, alcohol is more fun when you're dr- happy than when you're sad. I didn't know that. I hadn't drunk enough to know that. <laughs> Folks out there, don't try drinking away those miseries. That doesn't work. But in any case, the first thing I did... After that happened, and I was pretty injured in that too, both my hands and stuff, which I never discussed, but I'm still like kind of. As I went to Mexico on a Mexican bus, I'm talking about here from Dallas, um, the buses that my neighbors, you know, not the people I read about or I meet when I go to a rally, the actual next door neighbor gets on the Los Mismos bus on Marcellus that goes nonstop all the way down to the state of Guanajuato to the town of San Felipe, which is a working-class town if ever there was one. And that is in central west Mexico. So I got on that bus. It's a 16-hour bus ride. I'm the only Anglo on it. The round trip is $170. And I, I revert to the adventurer that I'd been, you know, in my 20s that slept in the thing. And it's absolutely seamless. Um, but, you know, there were lots of children. I'm observing how the Mexican, you know, they're, they're tri-generational families in the Mexican household. You know, there's the abuela, the grandmother, and the mother, you know, and the, and the blah, blah, blah. And, and it it was an exhausting but wonderful experience. But again, again, I can't keep saying all knowledge is power. They'd show movies, but they broadcast it live throughout the thing. So if you don't want to hear this movie, good luck, you know. And you know what they ended up showing going down Rambo. I thought, my God, that's a 40-year-old movie with, with Sylvester Stallone. And they're showing Rambo, which is noisy, of course. And, but here's even worse. On the way back, they showed nonstop all four of the uh, Fast and Furious, which is just really nothing except, you know. I mean, I loved Paul Walker. I mean, I'd love to have Paul Walker refrigerator magnets. But, you know, to sit there and watch four Fast and Furious movies where they... Have you ever seen one of those? (laughs) And you're only this kind of slow bus that's meandering around. That's yeah. all my imagination is you know, doing. It's just flying and you're watching Fast and Furious. with, a, And it's so loud. It's just completely as loud as in any, you know, like 
multiplex movie and everyone's kind of ignoring it but see they're all used to that whereas in the anglo world we'd you know it'd be where the sound is only if you've got your earbuds on you know see what i meant i just like being in other people's worlds and i went down there and arturo doesn't have i met him in a park and helped him get back you know he'd been here illegal he had swum across the Rio Grande, just like they used to talk about, and had been here illegally, un, uh, without docu- undocumented for thirty years, sending money home to his family. He had never been successful here, but he was successful enough that they weren't starving, and his wife had diabetes. So anyway, I went and stayed with them. So I'm in this like working class town in this this cinder block house in the middle of this thing, you know, and. There's the daughter who does hair and nails, you know, in this front room. And then they also sell brooms and laundry detergent through the window here at this front. Then there's five grandchildren. The three daughters are living there and so forth. So it goes on and on and on. And I'm sleeping on the floor on a mattress that, you know, that really kind of, you know, just photographed. It kind of looks like the... um an aerial photograph, let's say, of the of the Appalachian Mountains. You know, it was just I could sleep like a baby on that big old lumpy mattress that's on the floor. And my sister saw the pictures and she said, "Why were all your clothes on the floor?" And I said, "And poor people don't have closets." It was like you know, <laughs> it's just nice to know stuff other people don't. I don't know. Maybe it makes you feel a little bit smug. I don't care. I hope it doesn't come across that. I'm just fascinated by it. So the difference is, you know, you're hit sitting here across from me. You can see I kind of sparkle thinking about all that stuff and everything. But yeah, I went to be there. There was Arturo. You know, he sells his pots to middlemen for a dollar and 25 cents a piece he has to haul the water out there in the country where he's got the piece of land everybody there owns something because it's been in their family forever i saw the house the adobe house that his wife grew up in uh can you imagine how many people were in this one little adobe house and and it's still standing even though the roof is gone um arturo has to bring the water to make the clay and then it goes in these these uh what am i trying to say molds and it's just it's it's done exactly like it would have been done in 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 etruscan times because we're in a third world environment you know and and uh and then when it's done he gets a dollar 25 for each pot and they're living on that you know, except then that you've got Celadonia doing the hair, and every now and then they sell a mop. Um, my friend Charles, you know, that I take care of the homeless man, you know, for years he gathered up all the cans on the golf course. That's in, The golf course is in between me and him. It's a municipal golf course. And, you know, you're not supposed to drink on the golf course, but gosh, I know you're shocked. Thank God you're seated, but those guys are drinking beer. So, you know, he goes and goes through all the garbage cans and climbed in. You know, here he was, 60 years old, and he's climbing in a dumpster. And then he would get a 60, 70-pound bag of these things and walk six miles in the summer heat to get 11 to $17. So, you know, that's the man then, you know. I know he took pride in doing that, but now I've got him, you know, as I said, he gets food stamps, he's 
he, I, I give him a $40 step on, you know, each month he gets his dark pass and everything. And, and, and twice a year we get him shoes and everything. And Charles kind of has a sense of sort of like he, in Charles's mind in the homeless world, Charles is kind of upper middle class now, you know, he, he, he's got plenty of clothes. He sleeps warm. I get the plastic tarps that go over his things, but but I have all these different people that have never known anybody homeless than that tell me about them. One of them even told me, he's probably happier than any of us because he's rejected the material world. I said, he hasn't rejected the material world. In fact, he's a hoarder. You should see his compound. In terms of keeping it real and, and poet's eye and observing and, and and living, I certainly found a neutral parallel here to the corporate world. And, and, you know, I've written in my book as well about kind of feeling like you're living in a bubble. You get certain news, you meet certain people who tend to be type A, high achieving, multi you know, degree oh type, type of... I can't wait uh, to read your book then because <laughs> that's so true, isn't it? You kind of live in that bubble and it's... it's if like, you're successful in it, yes. Yeah, you end up doing that. And, and certainly I found a real hunger just to connect with normal people. I mean, my parents certainly were not, they, they, they were working class folks and, yeah. and um, you know. I think you said one of them ran a bar, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they did. Um, yeah. the a pub. Fire, you know? Firemen and fishermen and my mum was a nurse and, and they, they were publicans for a period of time and, um, and so on. I was kind of on a track to have a different type of life you in this professional life where you're living yeah. but, but ultimately the success in that life led you into a bubble where in fact I met a lot of other CEOs of big companies and worked with them who are living in their own bubble you know their kind of family was kind of somewhere in another country and their kids were going to oh these international God, schools yes. and oh all, but that God. just became normal I remember a, it's a time when I thought that it's normal it's like I said which color Mercedes am I getting you mentioned that you've dealt with those uh, with folks as well and that, that's normal it's good nothing wrong with that but it, it's kind of it's not what I want or you want yeah for me um, keeping it real was actually doing this whole project the podcast and yeah. the book and, and everything oh, else I, but I sensed that about you yeah there's many things that are fascinating that we, we've talked about it, but one of those is, you know, how do you keep it real in your own life and, and stay connected to humanity, which I'm trying not to talk in any bumper. I'm not, tr I'm purposely not saying how do you be present? How do you love everybody? And all. I'm trying yeah, to yeah, not to yeah, use those yeah, words. Yeah, I'm actually yeah. just trying to communicate something, which is a basic fundamental thing, which is how do you connect with people on a human level and, and maintain that connection to people that are different from you? They've got different views. I can tell you exactly a, how. You do it because you haven't created any kind of veneer of of authenticity on yourself. Let me let me let me explain that. One of the nice compliments I got was from a friend. Actually, uh, it's a woman, and she's. I mean, my God, I can't even tell you how much money she has. I mean, you know, her father, you know, was co-founder of one of the most successful startups in the history of the United States. But anyway, so she lives a very different world, you know, than I do. I mean, I think, you know, her house had, I mean, how many millions of dollars did it cost for her to build her house? But I overheard her telling somebody one time at a dinner, and it was a Nobel Prize winner she was talking to. She said, the thing about Rollins is he's comfortable talking to anyone. And she's, and she said, and they seem to understand that he is, they accept him, you know, I thought she didn't know I heard that, but I thought that is one of the loveliest things ever said about me. And I had to think about then. There's 
several things. One, you have to really be interested in people. And there's a big difference between being interested in people and just liking people. You know, you hear, you know, teenage girls when they wanted to apprentice with me, you know, at, at, from wealthy families at Neiman's, you know, they would always say, oh, I just love people, you know. Well, you, you know, I'm just saying you have to really, really be interested in people just on, in general you also have to be and this is i'm th i'm glad i didn't forget to mention this this the goal is that within the bounds of reason you don't but you don't have to filter who you are depending on who you're with you follow me on that that's not something you do when you're in the corporate world i will honestly say and i have to I'm, i don't want to forget this when you were talking, the most successful I ever was, and that's air quotes, folks, unsuccessful, um, I ever was, was in the 90s, uh, in what I call the Bill Clinton years, the 1992, you know, to 98. Um, and yet I was never more lonely. Um, I had the beautiful clothes, making a lot of money. I'm Flying first class all over, you know. I'm a big choncho at Neiman Marcus. I'm going to Europe and all these kind of things, you know. And there, you know, at some point, it was just like practically everything but wind machines and tuxedo violinists playing, you know, when I'd walk in. And I was so lonely. Um, everybody I knew, and I'm building on your point. Everybody I knew in the context of the business world was either an overachieving sort of aging preppy who had, you know, gotten a Harvard MBA or they were a sort of much too thin gay fashionista who w wanted to be the court jester, you know, and they always tried to cast me in that role, you know. We want you on television, we're, you know, critiquing the gowns for the Oscars. And I, 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 I can't even tell you how unlikely it would be that I'm going to be the one that goes on there. And you've seen them do that. They don't do it quite as much as they do, but they, they always hire the gay man to be the one that's making all these trashy snarks on what, you know, so-and-so is wearing and all that kind of stuff. That's, you know, so I had those options. And, and you know, then when the weekend came, I had no, you know, and then also, this is just a larger lesson to anyone listening. You know, they say that, you know, your best friends are the ones you grew up with. There's no friend like an old friend. Well, a lot of time those old friends can be baggage. You know what? They got, as I said, they can come to where they can, they equate wise into maturity with hardened, rigid conservatism. I have a friend right now, hell, I wasn't afraid, ashamed of being gay when I was 14 in the Cubs, Boy Scouts. I wasn't effeminate particularly. I didn't need to come out. I told my buddies, you know, nobody had a problem with it. That's what millennials would do now, right? They just, you know, I didn't have any problem with it. They didn't have a problem. I watched my friend Bill 50 years later. He is contributing to the Boy Scouts and pulling his son out of the, uh, of the Eagle Scouts because he did not like that they had passed the thing that they would allow openly gay men in the Boy Scouts. The same guy that shared my bunk with me 
50 years earlier when no one was open about being gay. But see, because of the world I grew up in at home and everything, you know, and who I was, I did get it. I was raised in the 21st century, you know, as I said, 50 years ago. This guy, I won't talk to him anymore. I have no, oh, friends are the best friends? Oh, yeah, right. That How'd that work out? It worked for a long time. So getting back to the thing about happiness, you're making all the support the success and everything and everything and you're around those people at work as I just described and then you're watching your friends that used to be kind of changing with the times and understanding who you were as you changed with the times and then they're going off that sort of right wing religious cliff I mean one of them said to me you know he said to me one night he took my hand at dinner don't you want to see your mother again I said well not really. She's been dead for 40 years. She probably looks horrible. You know, it's like you just, you're just pushing back on it. So in this century, let's look at the math. In this century, I go on NPR, you know, and then I'm on the KERA affiliate. And, you know, I'm suddenly in the pubs in Dallas when the, when the next generation is coming around. And I have millennial friends who liked my work and everything. That's how I ended up doing the shows. My shows were packed with millennial heterosexual men and Gen X men and everything. It's completely the opposite. And by the way, I never figured out, thought that as, as times changed that KERA understood that. I think they had actually come to typecast me that, you know, I probably had a, you know, a poetic, you know, senior citizen <laughs> following or something, you know. In this century and the life I've got now, there's so many interesting people I know, so many good people. You know, I'll see an Instagram photograph of that mural of my head down in Deep Ellum, and it'll be some tattooed hipster, you know, with his little girl, his baby on his arm or something. I'm just, it's it's lovely. It's lovely. But I don't get a lot of credit for it. I don't think, I don't give myself a lot of credit. I just think I've been extremely lucky that somehow I went through the looking glass in this century and found a path to being able to interact with people of other generations and, 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 and somehow find a, you know, true happiness, true happiness. Even when I'm unhappy and depressed these days, I'm happy. I didn't mean to get long-winded about that, but that really is. I mean, you know, you, the minute you started talking about the corporate years and the things like that and the kind of sterile you know, options, it dovetailed right with what I talked about, you know, when what luggage they can have and what schools they can go to. And, you know, I'm a lucky man. I'm a very lucky man. I just wish my big dog Mo was here. <laughs> <laughs> I like a big dog. I'm starting to think this should be a series rather than an interview, but we'll, there's plenty, plenty more to go. I think either we'll all, all uh, run out of energy and, and fall on the floor before uh, before we've covered off everything. We're coasting towards a good conclusion here for at least mm -hmm. this occasion yeah, of sure. speaking. Earlier on, you talked about being lucky, and you know, on face value, you've done a whole show about how you've almost been killed or murdered many times, and yet you consider yourself a lucky person. So what, just say more about that, your perspective on life, about serendipity. Do you feel that someone is watching out for you or what, what's led you to this? My three shows were very different. Like I said, the first show was the adventure years, you know, up to 28. The middle show was right before Halloween, which was great timing. And, and it was called Happy Murder Stories. 
I've got all this on real high quality DVDs if anybody wants it on my website or whatever. But anyway, I'll give you copies. They're good. They're good. I, I was smart enough to hire really, really good people to film them and edit them, you know, so because you can't get that back after it's over. But getting to your question, I love all three shows just the way I loved all three of my dogs. But the middle show, the Happy Murder Story show, was a personal favorite. I mean, they can all be your personal favorites, if you know what I meant. You've got more than one child, so you know what I meant. Uh, but I loved it so much because, first of all, I am a man, and those are guy stories. I mean, you know, I don't know guys who have stories like I had in the Happy Murder Story show. So as a guy, I kind of liked out guying the other guys. I've got these stories. You know, that's just kind of the pub got Rollins. But I also um, I also love them because they're just wildly adventuresome, and they're also very, very uh, scary. Um, the story, and I'm not going to give it away here, but for instance, and then I'll answer your question. I'm building to it. But like in the second act of the Happy Murder Stories is the scariest story I've ever heard in my life from anybody. It's called The Logging Truck, and it has to do with my dog, Corey that I had adopted that hitchhiked with me from, uh, I think, 72 to, and was with me even through my Alabama years, against all odds. So there's all these stories with Corey. But Corey and I get, um, after midnight, northern California coast, very rural in the redwoods, no traffic at all. And finally, we're trying to get a ride to our campsite. You know, we're camping and uh, and we finally get a ride with a logging truck. And I, it was only, only twice in my life have I ever been face to face with a serial killer. Uh, I've been around people that kill people, and I even talked about the murder story show was fun because I made it funny sometimes. Uh, there are some fun stories that are funny, you know. They're only funny because you lived. But but um, uh, people try to key you for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's in no particular order. It's sport. I tell one story about these two guys that picked me up on the island of Maui after I had stowed away on that 1971 flight and uh, um, how they came back and just for sport hunted me all night uh, with their rifles. It's nothing personal. If they didn't find me, you know, and we'd run into each other in a bar a couple of days later, they would have laughed and bought me a drink. It's weird. You So you learn these things. And then there's other people that... Uh, try to key you because um, you remind them of something. It's the flip side of that woman in Acapulco. You know, I reminded her of her son that had been killed in, you know, living in by a car, you know, when he was in um, uh, whatever prep school in, in, in London. Um, and then there are the uh, people who it's, it's circumstantial because they re, they they perceive, I mean, that's also in the show, the very first story where it's nothing personal. They just think that you're trying to get something of theirs, like, you know, an inherit part of the inheritance or something like that. So it's circumstantial. It's nothing personal. 
uh, it's weird, you know. And then, and then, then there's the subcategory of the people that you know. It's because it's circumstantial. That's why they have first and second degree murder because you know they were drunk or they were delusional. There's a story I called the two Marines that takes place on the island of Oahu. Also, after I'd started, I got I've had so many people try to kill me in Hawaii. Believe me, it is not paradise for Rollins, but um. But those guys tried to kill me because they were on heroin. I didn't know they were on heroin. They were on something, psychedelics, as we used to call them, or something, because they decided that I was his girlfriend, Linda, that had slept with uh, his friend and everything. And I kept saying, I'm not Linda, you know. I mean, my God, they're trying to kill me. I'm, I'm not Linda, you know. So... In the real world, they probably would have known I'm not Linda. But, you know, that night they decided I'm Linda and, and I could have been killed, you know, and there wouldn't have been anything, you know, when they showed up and found the cadaver, you know, that would say, you know, they, they thought I was Linda. And then finally, the one is the true serial killer, the person who really has. And I've been face to face with that twice. Um, ugh. Let me tell you, there is nothing but luck that stands between you and surviving being in the in face to face with a serial killer. So here in answer, believe it or not, I remember what your question was, and the question is, and and it's 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 a question that I would beg somebody to ask: How can you have all those stories and all those things that happen to you? You know, like these, you know, and and still really enjoy people. <laughs> PMB. I don't know. I don't know. I do know this that I take, and you can tell, I take enormous pride in having all those stories. They weren't necessarily fun to live through and stuff. And, you know, it's, I don't even want to get there and try to sort them through or something. But I do have all those stories, and they really did happen to me. And I own them, and I'm good at telling stories. And and I've got a great memory, you know, for that. And I also got them on film so that if I died tomorrow, somebody's, you know, got that, you know. I always thought I need to write those stories, and perhaps I do. And I am a good writer, but it's just for some reason the idea that they're captured on film with me standing on stage in a crowded theater and good lighting and i don't know it's just i'm i'm just i just am truly grateful just like i was that when i won poet and resident i thought oh, the rest of my life i get to say i'm a poet you know i did that i own that but i think i think people are suckers to not realize that you, and again, I don't mean to denigrate people who um, struggle to get from here to there when things happen to them. Um, and I've already made very clear there's a difference between things that happen to children and happen to adults. I've made this very clear about processing. But I, I think the best revenge you ever get with someone who has um, tried to kill you or, I mean, gosh, I could just give away a lot of my good stories here, but I won't. But in the murder stories, it, 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 you know, it talks about, my, my, I mean, for God's sakes, that family house that burned down in 1969, I told you and everything, that was arson. And I ultimately figured out who did that. And, you know, 
I really thought about killing them. I mean, that was my house and that was my my pets burned up and my life burned up. I mean, you know, um, and and they got the insurance money. I won't give away the stories, but but who wouldn't at least entertain the idea of, you know, it's like if you've ever been depressed, you understand sometimes why somebody does commit suicide. You're not thinking about suicide. That's not it. It's just that you get to a place where you understand it's dark and you understand then how somebody else might evolve. Am I making any sense? Like when you're drinking and you're halfway through the second drink and you realize when it kind of that is the Tennessee Williams said in Cat on Hot Tin Roof, you know, that click. Uh, but the best revenge you ever get against someone who has victimized you is to not be their victim. It's not original with me to realize that. And this is what I say to people like when they, you know, when, you know, if I've given away, I mean, you know, it's like I also get to claim that I've been a rape victim, you know, uh, does that mean the rest of my life I'm going to be um, um, afraid of men? You, you know, did I get from here to there overnight? No. For four years after that happened to me, I wouldn't let anybody touch me. Even if I was at a social thing and somebody touched me just politely, I would actually recoil and get angry. Almost angry the way you would, you know, like when you punch somebody if they'd grabbed your privates, no reference again to our president, but, um, but, um, yeah, I think that's part of it. I rejoice in not being their victim. I rejoice in it. I'm proud to have the stories. I'm proud to have gotten from here to there, but there's just too many good people out there. And, 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 I'm just not going to be somebody's eternal flame victim. I remember, you know me, a stream of consciousness, but to this thing, I remember being, and here we are dealing with a, a, a an impending hurricane right now. So it's topical on top of everything else. I've already mentioned Katrina. But I was in New Orleans with this lesbian couple who were about my age, but this is 20 years ago easily and we were having dinner in the quarter and the younger of the two started telling me about she grew up in Biloxi about the hurricane that had come there and it was Camille or Audrey or whichever one it was but I think it was Audrey this way back in the day I mean this once upon a time before climate change and everything like that you know the big hurricanes you know everybody knew but um but her story was breathtaking. You know, she's in a tree, the water's rushing underneath her, the snakes are in the trees because of the thing. And it, it was a horrifying story. Do not, for a second, I don't, you know, it's like I said about when I told the NPR stories, do not construe this as a blanket. You know, I'm quoting something out of context here, but it's nonetheless no less real. And she finally said to me, as she looked across, she said, I'll never get over it. And I remember something in my mind, because I realized at the time it was 30 years when that, when it had been 30 years. And she's now like, um, 
maybe 50. It happened to her at 20. And um, I said to her, and whose fault is that? And I remember the look. It came out without me realizing it. And you can imagine how that was responded to, to use poor English. It, it was inappropriate for me to have said that, but I came to realize what a truly valid point that was. It was inappropriate for me to make it, but not inappropriate for me to come to that realization. At 30 years, whose fault is it that you'll never get over this? It wasn't like I'd sat around, you know, eating bonbons and hammocks for 30 years, you know. I was at the age where it had been 30 years since I'd, you know, had my first of, of, of many things. So that's a difference, too. That's a difference, too. You know, it's just, I don't know. I think it comes across as smug and self-involved and a lot of other things to talk about this. But I just know that I really, honestly, I, oh, I know something I want to say. One of the things I've noticed that some of the dullest people on earth have one good line that they say to you that you remember. Have you ever had that happen? Yeah. And I just remember one time, it was a million years ago, there was this dull, 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 dull woman every time I'd be around her. And, of course, we were very young then, so, you know, she was probably still 19. But she said to me, she was having an affair with an older man, you know, an artist and everything. And I asked her why they'd broken up. I mean, I'm just kind of getting to this. And she said, well, she said, Rollins, Ultimately, it was that I was interested in having experiences that he wasn't interested in repeating. And I thought, that is a wonderful line. And this was a woman that said stupid things all the time. They'd pass a bowl of pills around at a party, and she'd just take them. I said, why are you gobbling those pills? Well, they offered. You don't even know what they are. I know, I know. We, you know, so she was that stupid. But this woman that's a real bona fide alcoholic and also a victim of having grown up wealthy, but also someone to whom a really atrocious nightmare happened. Her parents were both killed in a private plane crash flying in for her birthday. God, I mean, who in the hell? I mean, and the, but this woman said to me one night at Lee Harvey's, which for anyone listening is a dive bar in Dallas that I particularly love. It's in the southern part of Dallas, south of downtown. And for about 10, 15 years, it's been kind of an epicenter of a, of a mishmash of people. I like to go to places where it's unpredictable who's going to be there, you know, not sort of tribal, you know. And um, that's the way it used to be in the bohemian world and why I left San Francisco in 73 because all of a sudden now the gay world had broken off from the bohemian world and everybody looked the same, you know. I thought, my God, there's no women. And they looked at me like, well, and what's your point, you know. Well, <laughs> I thought, if I'm having to explain why no women, and, you know, you know, it's just got, anyway, getting to the point. She said to me one night, and very often she offended me with her sort of, you know, self-involved banality because she's an alcoholic, you know, and she's bitter. For the rest of her life, she's bitter. And she said to me, she said, my sense of you, is, I mean, whatever, you know, paraphrasing the 
lead in to what she was saying. My sense of you or my take on you or something I've come to realize about you is that you unpacked your baggage a long time ago, sorted it, and then put it away. And I thought that is one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten in my life. And I'm getting that from someone who's truly damaged. And that's when I realized the difference between being ruined and damaged. I mean, I'm still damaged from what happened, you know, two months ago with my dog's head being shattered by, you know, something protruding from a train. But I won't be ruined by that, you know. Uh, Damaged is when you're wounded and you bleed, you know, and then metaphorically, then, you know, it forms a scab and then ultimately the scab, you know, kind of goes away. All those fingers right here I'm showing you were cut off in, in 2002 and they were on the floor. You don't even see any scars. It doesn't work as well as a hand that fingers weren't reattached. But I always say, you know, if I wanted my hand to work like it used to, I shouldn't have cut all the fingers off. But they were reattached. I don't even have scars there anymore. So that's the difference between being wounded and being ruined. A lot of people, and I think this is a good place to sort of be winding down, this is a very real Rawlinsism. A lot of people love their victimhood. They don't realize it, but they do. They think it's a tattoo they've been given. Uh, and, you know, it's validated that they're the victim. And... I sense it all the time. I sense it all the time. It's their excuse for everything. It's their excuse for every anger, you know, their, you know, and it can manifest itself a lot of ways. I've even seen that in the civil rights things, both back in the day and now. I can tell when people are really, they're using a, the statues there. I'm talking about my white friend. They're using the statues as an excuse for them being angry. The truth is they're unhappy with their lives. They're unhappy in their marriage. They're, you know, they're artists and they're not doing well. They're, they're, it's, it's, it's there's, I know there's a psychological word, word in the professional medical world for when you take, it's manifesting. Is that it? Where, yeah, that you just, you take it here and you project it there. Yeah, and it's manifesting, whatever. But I can spot it when, you know, because there's a difference between when a happy person is mad about something and when an unhappy person is mad, you can spot it. Okay, so I think we're we're definitely running out of time. Well, I guess. Uh, for, for, for this, <laughs> I guess. This, the, is, this the, is longer than the run-up to the eclipse. The, yeah, that's right. There, there might be a hurricane here at some stage today, but the the sun has gradually has got darker in the sky. It's also getting later. But um, okay, normally well, you're a great guy to deal with. I appreciate you. Normally at this stage, um, normally I ask the guests to talk a little bit about Dallas and trying to help help me and and the other sure. listeners to interpret what this place of Dallas is all about. Well, I'd be glad to, and I can make that kind of a little bit more concise. Dallas is a very unusual city. I mean, they're all unusual. They're in a single place that's not unusual, um, <clears throat> one way or another. 
But Dallas is not a city that anyone can move here and just immediately understand. I mean, they try to. We talked about this earlier, and I've seen many, many. There are you know, there are road kills, I call them. They're transient road kills because they come here and they try to figure it out, and they think that they can figure it out quickly, and they can't. Part of that's because, as we discussed, it's a, it's a car city. It's a city that came of age after the car was invented, and those cities are always very different from cities that are like you know, said, you know, like Chicago and Dallas would be very different because, you know, Chicago predated the car by quite a long time. And that explains why the north uh, in the United States is very different from the south, because before the air conditioner was built, who would move here? Although my family moved to Texas in the late 1700s and the early 1800s, but that's a whole other subject. So that's difficult it's also a very segregated town in lots of ways, although statistically it's not as segregated racially as as uh, a lot of other cities in the United States, but that's a tough sell to people that live here. But it's spread out in such a way that I think, and I'm sure this is very typical of a lot of cities now, it's very socioeconomically uh, 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 segregated. And there's a statistic about Dallas that's kind of stunning, and that's been true now for about 35 years, I think. And that is that 50% of the people who live here either moved here or were born here in the last eight years. So the continuity then of information is just lacking. Um, uh, and people that move here tend to run with people that moved here. They don't realize it. They move here. They move into an area. They learn that area and then another area that's probably adjacent. And then maybe they learn what they think is an adventuresome thing, like going across the river either to Trinity Groves or to uh, the Bishop Arts. Uh, you know... Um, Whereas, you know, you were off singing Deep Ellum and Deep Ellum, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm all over this city and I, I, I would be if I, like I said earlier, I think, you know, if I was transferred to Cincinnati two and a half years after I'd moved there, even though I wasn't happy necessarily, I'd, I'd make myself happy being in Cincinnati. But um, I would know areas of the town that people that grew up there didn't. And they would ask me things like, well, why would you even go there? You know, and that's the same kind of question is like, um, you know, the guy that watched my murder show and said, well, why would you get on that logging truck? Or, you know, really, you know, there's just people are either adventuresome or they're not. And to think that everybody's adventuresome, but just some people are not motivated to be to act on it is just nonsense. A lot of people are very, very happy to be told where to live, where to go. And they're territorial. But so that's an issue. Uh, but it's also and a lot of what Dallas is known for when you're here, you know, the superficiality of certain areas, let's say uptown gets a bad rap on that. Then there's the Oakland area, which the gay culture, a lot of it. The, and the gay culture is just, you know, I've been openly, you know, uh, homosexual, you know, my entire life. And, yet, you know, after puberty or something, and I'm just as mystified by the gay culture as as, you know, the mayor of Guam. I don't know if he's gay or she, he or she is, or something, but you get my thing. I go over there and I realize that, you know, no one's wearing a pocket on a shirt. You know, for some reason there's, you know, you're supposed to wear a farm-fitting shirt and it doesn't have a pocket. And, you know, if there's a gay couple, I notice they're dressed alike. <laughs> I was like, 
it's so strange to me. It's so strange to me. And 40 years later, the same kind of music in it. So, you know, it's a woman singing, I'm a victim of that man I love, but I don't care. I love him, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is so, you know. So I'm, you know, there's that. And then you go over and you're in the Bishop Arts area, and that's transformed in the last three years from being kind of a mecca for a, a mishmash of art types, you know, kind of like the Greenwich Village was, let's say, in the early 70s, mid-70s in New York. And now it's becoming like another form of uptown. Um, it's just, there's just no simple way to understand Dallas. But it's like, again, if you're exposed to all the different, I mean, like here we are right now in my house, and I'm right next to a 6,000-acre forest. And as I told you, a lot of people in Dallas don't even know Dallas has a forest. And this forest is, we're not in rural Dallas. We're not in Dallas County. We're in inner city Dallas right where I'm sitting. I'm as close to you right now, I mean, to that to downtown right now is Central Market on Greenville, for God's sakes. And anybody, you know, so, and nobody when they're in Green Central Market on Greenville feels like that, you know, they're in the hinterlands. So... The idea that people live here and don't know there's a 6,000-acre forest, for instance, that I've been in every day of my life since it was all bought up. It was a, it was a bond election in 1998, and it was only $41 million to buy up all the land that the city didn't own to modify the floodplains and blah, 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 and consolidate it into the oldest old growth, largest old growth urban forest of any city in the nation. That should be something that's common knowledge here. You know, just like I go, we went, I have gone, you know, we learn things, you know, how to conjugate a verb, how to navigate a city, but, you know, no, no. So I used to become just beat red when people would say, well, if Dallas had a forest, I'd know. I'd say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely here to try to convince you that I live in a mythical kingdom. So, you know, they spend a million dollars to build a dog park on at White Rock Lake, a million, a million dollars to build a dog park on Mockingbird at uh, White Rock Lake, on, on Mockingbird, like I said. And yet I have a 6,000-acre forest dog park. It's, it's, you know, and, and, and you came over here from Deep Ellum. It wasn't like, you know, you had to have a... Um, I didn't need a passport to get over here. Or, absolutely. Or to, I didn't need to fuel up the car. No, my God, no. You didn't have to fill up twice, you know, on the way. I think it was like 11 minutes maybe, and that's because you were new at it. I could get there in seven. Um, so there's that. So there's a thousand things going on, but I will tell you the one. And so in many ways, it's a very un-Texas city in a lot of ways because – so many people here are not from here. I'll tell you my issue with that. I, I love, you know, look, everybody's a, a migrant somewhere. But I would never move to Sydney and be bitching I can't get good Tex-Mex, you know. So I don't understand people moving here and concentrating on what they can't find here that they I understand why they might be nostalgic for certain things. Don't get me wrong. I understand all that. But I've seen people move here and live here for 30 years who never become a Texan. And then I've watched other people uh, move here 
and they do. And and when you try to describe what a Texan is, I'll tell you what a Texan is. A Texan is someone who has a little bit larger than life view of the world. You know, anything's kind of possible. Wide open spaces, the sky, you know, there's just something inside of it. There is a weird kind of optimism. And it's also, you know, um, just, it's just, there's just something you can't really, I mean, I guess if I really thought about it and we ever talked about it again or something, I could better define what a Texan is. But I'll give you a perfect example of somebody. There's a politician in town. She used to be a city council person, and she's now, you know, kind of a, a bon vivant about the arts and, and historical preservation and everything. It's Valletta Lill. Valletta Lill moved here really from Illinois and Kansas. I mean, you know, it's all, all up there and everything. Valletta Lill's as Texas as they get. She's smart and shrewd. She's a can-do person. Texas has always been very, very embracing of smart women. I can tell you right now, that's a complete myth. Otherwise, I mean, you know, as conservative as this, we had a, a woman Republican senator for, what, 20 years. That's only recently that we ended up getting the Canadian import um, to replace her. Uh, you know, it's just – it's. It's contrast. It's just it's it's completely it's amazing how contradictory Texas is in so many ways. I mean, like I'll have somebody say to me, I had a guy that lives in Westlake, you know, he's so typical of a lot of guys that come out you know, as home, as gay, you know, later in life, you know, he in his mid thirties, you know, it's funny because they're like, you know, they had that thing about, you know, if you were an alcoholic from 19 to 20, 41, and then you go dry and everything, your emotional development is still 19. You know, this is, I'm not my opinion. I've read all that. So we'll just assume that's true. It's the same way about men that come out in the, in, you know, as, as gay later in life. Suddenly they want to be dancing with their shirt off in a in a a bar at, you know, 43 years old. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life, you know. And again, it's like these guys that are telling me, do you not realize how unfair it is for to be black? I think, yeah, I kind of realized that in, when I was nine when my mother took me to that rally at the black church to... Um, to help spearhead desegregation of the Dallas schools. But, you know, they came from Republican, white backgrounds, and all of a sudden they've seen the light, you know. So they're the evangelicals, and I'm somehow the passive heathen. Well, that's the same way it is about so many of these things. You know, when people move here, you know, it's just, it's just, they just don't, they don't want to get it, you know. They don't want to get it. But, but there are, immense numbers i mean like oh i know what i was driving at this guy that just came out like i said he sat there right there with me at cafe momentum if you know what that is downtown my friend chad hauser who's you know you know retraining you know nonviolent offenders you know minorities almost exclusively um to learn the service industry anyway i may drop by there and i'm kind of missing having a glass of prosecco there but um here I am sitting with this guy, and this guy is telling me he doesn't even live here. He lives in Westlake. Westlake is, you know, not like, you know, a, a bastion of, uh, of uh, gay culture embracing, I'm quite sure. I don't know, but I just imagine Westlake's pretty upscale. Um, but in any case, he's telling me how, um, how homophobic this town is. 
He's just going through this diatribe of all these things because he's read this, he's read that, and, you know, it's all this stuff. You know, it's racist and it's homophobic and all this kind of stuff. He's just going through the litany. And I said, well, our police chief is a black man who happens to now be a black woman, and our sheriff is a Latina lesbian who's been reelected three or four times. And... I would think that flies in the face of what people would think Dallas, you know. And by the way, in Dallas, we the the biggest most important political position in Dallas is the city manager, and that in the last 20 years has either been a Latino man or a woman. You know, and you know, so hello. I mean, that doesn't sound like, you know, they've been shut out. You know, that sounds to me a Latina lesbian openly. <laughs> it's like you get down to Houston. You know, their last mayor was a woman that married another woman while she was in office. You know, Austin is to the left of, of Portland before it's all over. San Antonio, come on, let's get real about San The only Republican city in this entire state really is Fort Worth, and Fort Worth is a town I understand. It, it's kind of the old school Republican, but I can't get into all that. But the point is that if you ever really, remember when we were talking a million years ago in this conversation about how we try to make it simplistic, like the media or Republicans or bl black, you know. you That's the way people want to do about Dallas. It's like, you know, I'll hear somebody say, even I remember one time on uh, being interviewed by Jeff Weddington on um, KERA on his uh, Friday show, you know, anything you ever want to know. And they were, they were asking, this is way back, and they're asking, like, where they're saying, you know, the thing I really hate about Dallas is I just can't commune with nature, or however they put it. So everybody's calling in and telling about nature trails that are like in uh, Palestine uh, and, you know, all these things. And they were all good tips and everything. And I'm thinking, I'm two blocks away from this forest where I was just, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. So a lot of the time when people say, I'm just telling you, as somebody who's been here, what, four years now? Um, as often as not, that's a, really the perfect way to prelude that. As often as not, when I hear someone tell me what is missing here, it isn't something missing here. The other time when they say that something, tell me about something that's missing here, what they're really saying is that they miss where they used to live and they'll never, ever, 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 ever be happy anywhere else, or that they want that version. They'll say there's no parks here. Well, Dallas has actually more public park per capita, you know, square feet or whatever per capita than any other city in the nation. I mean, honest to God, you know, but that doesn't even count the forest. You know, you, down in Pleasant Grove, you know, there's like, uh, south of me, there's like Crandall Park, which is the second largest, I think it's Crandall, yeah. It's the second largest park, second only to White Rock. I mean, I could go on and on, but what they mean is there isn't a park in my immediate neighborhood or on my street. It's crazy. 90% of what I hear people tell me is wrong about Dallas is something that absolutely... They really honestly, or they don't know what they're talking about. 
it's like when, again, I have to bring it up. It's like when Donald Trump is talking about Mexicans. What does he know about Mexicans? I know Mexicans. <laughs> I've known Mexicans all my life. I'm telling you, if I had a nickel for every Mexican that has saved my life either metaphorically or actually, I could go and pay cash for a suit in any outlet store. So, you know, it's so just keep an open mind. I mean, you know, I may have worn you out, but you realize I'm a native Dallasite. I'm not some like weird specimen that was airlifted in. I'm a seventh generation time as Texan as they get, and I'm definitely Dallas. So how does that dovetail then with the pretentious person you see driving up and down McKinney in an Excalibur? It's been instructive to really hear different perspective because I think I came here um, four years ago and tried to understand the city and I, I guess why this question is even on the podcast is because I think it's an honest question you know people have got certain preconceptions about no it's a very about, honest question about the city and I, I certainly I didn't live too far from Highland Park you know the area you're talking about and that's probably one of the areas that people see as, as pretentious which isn't even actually Dallas it's really funny there's so many funny things about Dallas. Like, for instance, the Dallas Country Club is in Highland Park, which is incorporated and not even in Dallas. I, that's just so funny to me. It's like the Dallas Cowboys are actually in, in Arlington. You know, it's, you know it's, the, it's a million of those. But, you know, and I know, I mean, believe me, Dallas has a million things that are wrong with it. There's no question about that. But but here's something, and I'm thrilled I haven't forgotten to bring this up, and I appreciate you instigating this. I not long ago posted on Facebook, and I know Facebook sounds superficial, but let me tell you something. Facebook is what you make it to a certain extent, and it is evolved now to where, unfortunately, in life after last year's election, it's an echo chamber, as they say, for politics. But it is. But I will tell you this, and I don't mean to digress, but when my dog was killed on the thing, what am I going to do? I'm in the deep woods there. I, there's no way to get a car in there. This is a 90-pound dog. My dog's been killed. I came home. You know, I said my friend took me out and to get me drunk so I could sleep and everything. And I thought, I'll figure this out. At 11 the next day, I went on Facebook and said, I need help. I can't leave my dog rotting on the railroad track. Uh, I understand if you can't help me, but if some 11 people at 6 o'clock showed up and found where they had put the now decaying Mo, my dog, wouldn't let me see it. They found it by smelling. I don't mean to be gross, but this is the truth. This is what social media can be at its best. And they found the dog, and they did everything, and then they created a wonderful grave for Mo that I can go to. And and they did that like six and a half hours after I asked for help. And they also, this Charles that I've mentioned, you know, the people donate money to me to pay for all that. I was doing all that on my own before. Hell, I'm, you know, I'm not making a lot of money. I'm pay, I paid off all those medical bills after, you know, the thing. I mean, I could go on and on and on about how I've had financial reversals in this century. But, but Facebook, you know, at its best can be a conduit to people just like the podcast. But anyway... Here, the, the, the point of that is that 
uh, we're talking about, you know, Dallas and how how that works. I put on Facebook one night that my question to people who lived here is, why are you living here? If you hate it, why are you here? I don't think that's an unfair question. Do you think anyone's doing me a favor by living here and hating it? Do you not think I'm just glad you're seated because this might be shocking to consider, but don't you think that people that hate their life are kind of negative and they maybe are like sort of passing that off and that that spreads around and that probably has something to do with an unpleasant atmosphere uh, when people are around them, you know? We're upbeat people, you know, positive people, positive thinkers, people like Valetta Lil who moved here, you know, and is trying to get, you know, money to, you know, restore the Hall of State at the, at the State Fair, you know, there's a million of them, great people that move here and everything. But anyway, I put that on there. I can't tell you how many people attacked me. And then they went through the litany. I'm only here because my mother is in, in a home. I don't care. That's not my problem. I took care of my elderly aunt and my mother and father. You know, I mean, I've been there, done that. And I understand. But don't translate that to your your hatred and they're also the kind of people that you'll say you know they'll say oh it's homophobic and racist well and you know our police chief's a black woman and the sheriff's a latina lesbian you know you know and and they'll yes but you to death everything positive is a yes but you know yes but is a real good way for negative people to get their point across that they're right to be angry i'm a victim don't you understand look at my tattoo i'm ruined you know look what my life would be if i wasn't here i've got friends like that people i even love they couldn't believe the list of things they'd go the minute our children are grown we're out of here you know uh i, I heard it all i heard it all you know, I can't afford to live where I really want to. And that's my fault? You think I care? This is my hometown. How do you think that I'd feel if I moved to Duluth, Minnesota, where you're from, and I sit around and say, this place stinks. I hate it. You can't even find a decent enchilada. God almighty, look at this. It's so cold. Why is it so cold? I hate the cold. You know, this is what... Am I making sense? Yes. This is exactly, I could not believe, probably one of the biggest responses I ever got was when I posted, I guess my question, this is all I wrote, I guess my question to people who live here and hate it is, why are you, why the hell are you here? It was not an unfair question. But one of the things that you've got to recognize is that in Dallas, people feel free to move here and denigrate it. They consider this a no place. This is a place they're just circumstantially, and they don't like it. They don't like it. And one of the reasons they don't like it, I'm not saying they don't have a... Listen, I lived in Northern California. You don't think that? I think Northern California probably is prettier than Dallas. Maybe it is. But I doubt seriously if I could live on Grant Street now for $12 a week like I could back in the day. But um, it'd probably be 27000 a month now, and I think that'd squeeze my budget. But um, that negative feeling, it seems to be sanctioned. People move here and it's sanctioned. I'm not saying that out of anger. I've just noticed 
They feel absolutely entitled to just say horrible things about the town and uh, paint it with a... I mean, I still hear big hair jokes. I swear to God, I don't get that at all. Where are you seeing this big hair? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. You know, um, it's it's just silly. It tells me more about them than me. It just does. But they're shocked when someone, they're absolutely stunned, as a matter of fact, then when someone is calling their hand. You know, they're telling me what life is like here, and I'm thinking, well, you've been in this house now for four hours probably. Isn't this kind of a quite lovely street? You're not seeing all this kind of wow noise and everything i'm on a hill two half rooftops above the houses behind me and when the leaves fall i'm looking over a six thousand acre forest for 20 miles you know i don't tell me what life's like in dallas tonight i may swing into deep ellum you know i haven't been lately to that place called let me see what it's anyway it's got nice guy named seth it runs a uh little pub across from um uh the um angry dog starts with a p i don't know why the powder room or something i want to say but it's not it's the boundary of the powder room but anyway but you know i might have a you stop by and see him i haven't seen him in a long time then you know drop into to uh cafe momentum you know then drop by lee harvey's now that's three separate parts of town that's downtown deep ellum and then the cedars which is the northernmost part of of uh what's properly called south dallas i could go across the river to um um to an old place i love you know the the ten bells but I've I've learned now with all the construction going on and the density enhancement that's going on right now in Bishop Arts that going over there on the weekend, it's it's kind of like I try to decide should I go to Lusteric Jail tonight or to deep or to Bishop Arts? You know, it's a it's a toss up. You know, which sounds better, but but the point, and then I might end up out in Far North Dallas, you know, dancing salsa. You know, at a Colombian restaurant. I learned from mother when she said that when I was being self-important, and I told you earlier, you know, don't blame other people for how dull your life is. And and also keep the faith because my life really was dull in the 90s. I was so lonely, you know, I was so lonely, so successful and so lonely on weekends. I'd put on really nice clothes and I had no place to go. And then I with you know, with my friends that I'd grown up with and they were no longer relevant to the world as I was evolving to see it. Um, but but rather than blame them for that, I put them in a different category and I moved on. Be grateful. People that are really grateful for what they've got and 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 bring a certain joy to life. And, and and a positive feeling about resilience that the best is yet to come. That's very Texas. And contrast that then with the people that are here and tell you how much they hate it and never have a good thing to say about it and tell you what's not here. 
they're not the ones to be listening to. <sighs> They'll be a lot less exhausting to listen to than me, but you know. <laughs> but anyway, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about about Dallas and, to, and other things we've talked about. We I think we've covered probably everything, but how Guam went from being a volcano to an island. I think you probably know. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll save that for the next episode. That's right, so that's right. I, I think just your your final point and and the 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 end of this is really just any final words and life lessons. So I think there's a nice segue in here to say, and I think maybe this is what is evolving out of this question about understanding Dallas is really understanding life. And for me, I, I that's moved, well put. I found after moving to to Dallas, uh, my my experience has really been. It's, you know, I think you talked about the can-do attitude, and I think that's an attitude to life. You know, to get the most out of Dallas, it's not just kind of sitting there and letting it wash over you. Everything's here, and yeah. it's the same with life. I mean, you can continue doing something that you don't like and hating it, whether that's a job, if it's a relationship well, where you live, or you, you can choose to do something. One of my analogies is like a waterbed. If anybody remembers waterbeds, you push down over here and it goes up over there, you know, and that's the way, you know, you come here and maybe it doesn't have have you know the access to a mountain or something like that but but you can get you it's very easy to get very quickly to that and meanwhile why not why not go out to marfa and go to the davis mountains go and i'm telling you go to the alpine um area i mean the dallas texas is like really when it became a when it became a state in 1845 after it had been an independent republic from 36 to 45, it was agreed that it could divide into five states or something, you know, because it's just so big. So again, I think that when you're in Dallas and you're discovering what Dallas is, you also need to really be, your point about, it's really about life, but it's also about really discovering Texas because there's a lot more than you realize here. And, of course, things aren't close in Texas. Lord, you drive to Marfa, you might as well be, you know, on a moonshot. But people do it all the time. I've done it. You have, yeah. It's not a pretty drive. But there's just, you know, there's just so much to discover. Fort Worth is an interesting town, for God's sakes, and it's different. Fort Worth reminds me a lot of how Dallas was, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You know, they wouldn't like me saying that. And I don't mean it from a, in, in, in the real sense, but it's just there's something about it. It's so Texas over there. There's just something about it, the way the hierarchy is set up and everything. It's a great town. I don't know Fort Worth very well, but I'm telling you, I'm, I've been a Texan a long time, and I can tell you, when I'm in Fort Worth, I know I'm in Texas. On the other hand, I feel like I'm in, I don't know, I can't say, oh, I'm not going to mention some of the towns I don't like. That wouldn't go over. We'll save that also for yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd have to have a couple of drinks. Just when your Facebook is getting yeah. a bit quiet, yeah. then we can know. Uh, can, oh, yeah. uh, we'll give that oh, a go. Yeah. Um, so just really, and and um, any just final um, closing words for the listeners? Um, we've talked a lot about life lessons in life and I think, you know, I, I've i tried not to really just try and sum everything up in bullet points because yeah. I think you have to just, uh, there's, there's been a lot of insights here, certainly for me, even sitting at the other side of the table. But um, 
anything, any other messages? Or, or well, one message to you is that since you did come from Australia, and I told you this when I first met, when I spent my four and a half years, you know, I really basically was gone from Dallas for four and a half years while I was, you know, backpacking around the world. And as I told you, stowing away on planes and, you know, living in a cave and a pimpinist and blowing the whole nine yards. The the people with whom I had the most in common were Aussies, you know. I mean, people from Australia have a lot of the same DNA, that sort of, that, that's, I don't want to use the word spiritual, but it comes to me that sort of like that, that kind of resilient, spiritual sort of positive DNA. It's, it's clearly something that's in the Australian mindset. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they also have a very similar past in a lot of ways, you know, they were, they were a big frontier and so forth and so on. But anyway, so there's that. So that, you know, that's explains why I think that you've got a very open mind about a lot of things and, you know, you're, you're much more likely to concentrate on what you've got than what you don't have, although you're human enough sometimes to like certainly notice both. We live in the real world, but that doesn't mean we have to like always be splashing in the shallow end. But um, but I think the thing that I've gotten out of the conversation is is and, and it's something I got out of the shows, and it's something I didn't even think about preparing for today because I knew me well enough to know that that uh, if the music was right, I'd know how to dance. But I do think that it's very important for people to understand that you cannot, beyond a certain point, blame other people for what's happened to you and how you feel about yourself and life. I mean, you know... It, it's you can get accused in this era uh, of being insensitive and br- blaming the victim when you get into that kind of conversation. But I think I've got enough credentials that there is something to be said about that. And that's really the message of yours and your book and a lot of other things is just somehow taking some responsibility for your own happiness. <laughs> that's a pretty fundamental, you know, uh, thing that's getting lost in the shuffle. Everybody's blaming somebody else for being unhappy. And, um, but they're not always crediting other people enough for being happy. Um, I mean, I remember many years ago, Oprah Winfrey said, you know, I mean, back when she was like, you know, the up and coming guru and stuff like that, you know, and I said, everybody has something they said that I remember, you know, but. She said, you know, that she was going through a period where she really did decide that being happy was a was a choice. And I was reminded of that. And anybody that's ever really spent time in the Latin world knows that when I spent my time in Colombia, it was at the peak of the double uh, um, both the narco and also the leftist terrorist uh, war. I mean, civil war. I mean, Colombia spent 40, 50 years, you know, having not one but two different groups, you know, terrorizing them. And yet I can tell you that I would see people 
laugh and be happy and dance and so forth and so on. I mean, the human spirit, if you allow it and you're not getting sucked into all the sort of fake materialism and the status this and, uh, and, you know, having a thin skin about everything and, you know, just somehow getting duped into thinking that unless you're angry, you're not committed. How's that for a good line? That's what I'm hearing a lot. So in other words, if I'm not ang- angrier than you, I'm not as committed as you. Oh my God. You know, it's like, Oh, remember that, you know, gosh, if I don't have as many condoms as you at that orgy, I must not be. You know. Anyway, it's an option, but you also have to really, 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 really be kind to yourself and allow yourself to honestly and earnestly heal when you are damaged. You, you know, you can't brush that aside and throw it under the rug. Everybody by now knows that if, you know, if you really went through something like PTSD, you know, all that kind of stuff, the people that really don't deal with it and just push it back it comes out somewhere else just like that analogy i made where you push the waterbed down here and it goes up over there why is it going over there you know i'm over here yeah well that's the reason so you know it's just it's it's just a lot of that and also then to embrace where you are be in the now and then also to really really truly honestly live in the now i really am not a young man anymore but i can guarantee the conversation i'm having with you could just as easily be coming from someone that's 45 if they, you know it's not different from who i was then you know um in, in in that sense and and one of the reasons i'm not an archaic sort of vegetable you know uh, you know is is a result is because i am living in the now I'm nostalgic to a certain extent. I can tell you what 1965 looked like, smelled like, 1977 smelled like, looked like, sounded like, all that. I've been in all those same places. And, and, and by and large, I can tell you right now, I have a tremendous amount of reason to be nostalgic for a lot of the worlds I've lived in. And it would be interesting to revisit. But... One of the big shocks of my life, and this is relevant to the listeners, one of the big shocks of my life is that I really assumed when I was growing up that I would be an extremely nostalgic person when I got to my age. Uh, Because I sensed that about my father, you know, he'd been a has-been in the music industry when I'm growing up. You know, he'd been wildly successful in the big band era, and then after World War II, he's got a family, and what do you do? You know, he's a a musician in Dallas back in the 50s. So I thought I was going to be the one that at my age is looking over my shoulder at the good old days. I knew I wouldn't be happy doing that and everything, and instead, you know... I can go right now. We could hop in a car right now and I could go and find a mural of me down in Deep Ellum that's 16 foot tall. You know, that doesn't happen to everybody, but something like it can happen to a lot of other people besides me if they really allow themselves to follow a path of genuinely caring about people that are different from you, not just bleeding heart liberal caring. I mean, just really honestly paying attention, interacting with people that are different from you, shopping places where people are different from you. You know, drop into a dollar store in Pleasant Grove instead of just the one, you know, that's over in Lakewood. Just get around, you know, go around different places in town. 
you know, being a little bit more adventuresome, you'd be surprised. You know, you meet one person, it's like a Rosetta Stone. You meet somebody that's really interesting, and through them you meet other people. It's a, it's a, it's the good kind of cancer. That's the good kind of cancer. <laughs> Why you find a good, interesting person that can metastasize, and before you know it, you've actually got a network of interesting friends. That's a bumper sticker in there, or something like quite a long one. We'll yeah, have to. Yeah. <laughs> the good kind of cancer, yes. Roland Skilland, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure being here. I hope that somebody's been listening. To get the transcript and show notes from today's show and to sign up to the mailing list, go to www.totallifecomplete.com. Mm-hmm.